This is a Rooster Teeth production. January 25th, 1990. Avianca Flight 52, a Boeing 707 with 158 people on board, is circling and waiting to land at New York's JFK Airport. Bad weather in the area has forced the plane to delay and circle several times, and the weather shows no sign of letting up. The crew is becoming concerned that their fuel levels are too low, and they realize they don't have enough fuel to reach their alternate airport of Boston. To the crew's relief, air traffic control clears them to land, but the bad weather is making the landing very difficult. At 200 feet above the ground, the crew can't find the runway and are forced to execute a go-around. While getting vectored for another approach, the engines begin to flame out while the plane is still 20 miles away from the runway. What is the fate of Flight 52? Who is responsible for managing the fuel on the flight? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello, Gus. How are you doing, Chris? Oh, I'm good. You know, me and Gus, <laughs> we're, we're currently recording in separate offices next to each other, but in the same building, which is... Yeah, when we started Black Box Down, it was like, or when we started recording Black Box Down, it was February 2020. So we did the first couple of episodes together. And since then, we've had to do them all remotely. And we're in office today uh but we also we decided to just do in separate offices so we get clean audio for editing purposes so we're like yeah <laughs> recording little, in the same location a little peek behind the scenes we're we're yeah. si- we're sitting maybe 10 feet away from each other separated by a wall but we're we're in the same building <laughs> before we get started as I always want to remind everyone to give us a follow on social media at black box down pod uh facebook instagram twitter we'll post images video stuff related to the incidents that we talk about there's a lot of video. Well, I don't want to spoil anything, but I will say um, I'm going to have to comb through quite a bit. There's this is you know this happened in 1990. It's fairly recent in the grand scheme of things. So there's mm-hmm. quite a bit of like footage, and it was you know it was near New York's JFK Airport. So there's there's a lot of coverage of it. So I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to figure out what to show. But go check out on social media if you want to see um, what happened as a result here. So like I said. Avianca Flight 52 was an international passenger flight from Bocara, Colombia to New York City, but on the way it had a stopover in Medellin, Colombia, back in January 25, 1990. The flight was crewed by Captain Laureano Caviedes, who was 51 years old with over 16,000 hours of flight time. First Officer Mauricio Klotz, or Klotz, uh, an unusual name, who was 28 years old with 1,837 hours of flight time. The flight engineer was Matias Moyano, who was 45 years old with over 10,000 hours of flight time. And the aircraft used was a 22-year-old Boeing 707 with over 61,000 flight hours. And there were six flight attendants and 149 passengers on board. So the 707, you really don't see it flown anymore, but it was a pretty big plane. So mm-hmm. uh, it was a big four-engine plane. You know, it was, it was long enough ago and old enough ago where they had a flight engineer just to kind of put it in you know, in perspective, you know, what you're picturing uh, in your mind. That might have been just the cusp of flight engineers, right? Like, I feel like most of the ones we talked about were like 1980 or, you know, the yeah. 1980s or before. Yeah, and the 707 was also an older plane. So, you know, that may have had something to do with it. But yeah, uh, they were definitely getting phased out at this point. What did a flight engineer move on to? Because they used, I bet there used to be a ton of them, right? And then all of a sudden their job kind of got... That's not what this episode is about, but <laughs> that's not what this episode's about. We maybe we can do a supplemental episode and look into that. The I mean the truth is I I don't know. I couldn't answer that for you. I would assume, you know, a lot of them have plenty of flight hours and experience. They may have transitioned over to piloting. Mm. 
But yeah, I, I, I can't answer that with any authority, with no certainty. So I just want to clarify before we get really underway, all times in this episode are going to be in Eastern Standard Time. Okay. You know, it's always, you know, well, we just, sometimes we switch time zones. It all really depends on the report. This time we're going to stick uh, all in Eastern uh, Standard Time. I'm now mentally moving my brain up one hour. For uh, Yeah, for us, it's one hour difference. <laughs> <laughs> so Flight 52 departed Bogota at 1.10 p.m. and landed in Medellin a little under an hour later and they refueled. The flight then departed at 3.08 p.m. and started flying towards Miami at 35,000 feet. While in the Miami airspace, the flight was cleared to flight level 370 and the flight continued north. While flight 52 was over Norfolk, Virginia at about 7.04 p.m., air traffic control placed flight 52 in a holding pattern for 19 minutes. When this was done, the flight continued on its path but was placed in another holding pattern near Atlantic City at 7.43. This hold lasted for about 29 minutes. And then the flight continued on to New York, but then was placed into a third holding pattern six minutes later at 8.18. And at this point, this, this final third holding pattern, they were 39 nautical miles south of JFK. There was bad weather at the time. You know, this is January mm-hmm. 25th, so it's winter. Uh, in the northeastern part of the United States, they get, you know, they can get bad storms up there around that time of year. And that's what was happening. There was poor visibility, really, really poor weather conditions in general. So... Planes mm-hmm. were getting backed up coming into land into New York, so they were having to extend holes and keep people holding. I believe at the time they were trying to get about they were their goal was to land thirty three planes an hour at JFK, uh-huh. <laughs> but they were not doing that at all. They were they were they were having to really really put a lot of flights into holding patterns. I assume that's low for JFK at the time. I don't know what their typical would have been, but that's fast. I mean, that's a plane roughly every. A little under every two minutes. That is a lot. I just, I just assume JFK is like maybe that. May also, they're just like all the planes are stuck and they're trying to like it's like a bottleneck. Yeah, it absolutely is, and you know that's why they're having to to enter these holding pads. That's why even when you know out by Norfolk before they even got closer to New York, they were being you know being held further out and then slowly allowed to get closer. Mm, okay, yeah, because that's already forty eight minutes of holding time before they even got to the third one. Right. Now look at you. You keep your notes over there, Chris. Math. <laughs> <laughs> so when they entered this third holding pattern, they were at 14,000 feet and then they descended to 11,000 feet during the hold. So it's not like they're even holding at cruising altitude. You know, they're they're coming down. They're expecting to land relatively soon. Mm-hmm. Then at 8.44, while they were still holding, air traffic control advised them to expect further clearance at 9.05. The first officer responded saying, well, I think we need priority. We're passing, and then it's kind of unintelligible. The controller asked how long they could hold and what their alternate airport was. The first officer said they could only hold about five minutes longer, and the alternative oh, was, yeah, that's not good, right? <laughs> and the alternative was, and I'm going to quote what he said here from the voice recorder, Boston, but we can't do it now. We run out of fuel now. Oh, my. Ugh. How far away is Boston? Boston should be pretty close I drove once from Boston to New York. It took a few hours, but it's probably much faster on a plane. I'm going to look for you, Chris. So Boston to New York is about 200. If you drive it, it's 215 Mm -hmm. miles. So it's less than that, obviously, if you're flying in a plane because it's pretty straight. So it's not terribly far. So if they don't have enough fuel to go another 200 miles, that's not good. Yeah. So after hearing this response from the first officer, the assisting controller called New York Approach and told him of the situation And the New York controller said to slow Flight 52 down to 180 knots and that they'll let them in. 
The assistant controller who made the call did not hear some of Flight 52's transmissions and therefore did not pass on the information that Flight 52 could no longer reach its alternate airport. What? They didn't say that? No, they're playing now they're playing the telephone game. It's like oh, one no. person tells one person who tells another person like and like information's getting lost every step of the uh-huh. way. So Flight 52 was cleared to JFK at a heading of 040 degrees and a speed of 180 knots at 846. About eight minutes later, the crew were instructed to turn right to 220 degrees because air traffic control needed to make them do a 360 degree turn for sequencing. And that's mm-hmm. common. When things get a little too backed up, you just, you know, plane, you know, has to make a turn just to kind of do some spacing. A couple minutes later, air traffic control informed the crew of wind shears of 10 knot increases at 1500 and 500 feet. And the first officer acknowledged this. And wind shears is just, you know, changing of direction of the wind. Yeah. And I assume it's already pretty windy since they have bad weather. And the bad weather is probably what's causing these wind shears. So it's like strong winds that are quickly changing direction, which can be very dangerous. Oh, yeah. Especially when at that low, you know, they're reporting Mm -hmm. uh, 1,500 and 500 feet. I mean, (laughs) that's really low to be hitting a wind shear, especially with a big plane like this. At 9.03, the crew began discussing procedures for a go around with 1,000 pounds of fuel or less in any tank. The procedure was for power to be applied slowly and to avoid rapid acceleration and to have a minimum nose-up attitude, so not to pull very far back, to, to slowly climb. And the reason for that is, since there's not very much fuel in the tank, they don't want it all sloshing to the back and oh. then not getting fed to the engine. So uh, oh that's how low on fuel they are. They have to factor in sloshing f- fuel. Oh, my God. Right. It's like there's so little fuel, if it all goes to the back of the tank, then it's not going to reach the pumps and get fed to the engines, and they'll run out of fuel. Oh. So, yeah, that kind of, I think that really cements how critical their fuel situation is at this point. Mm-hmm. At 9.11, the controller cleared them to maintain 2,000 feet until established on the localizer and cleared them for ILS on runway 22 left. And we've talked about this before, the localizer and the ILS is just like the, the automated system that lets them know, you know, if they're on the glide slope. Since visibility is low, mm-hmm. this will let them know if they're, you know, making the correct approach onto the runway. With the lights... Sorry, I was thinking of Poppy, the Poppy, Poppy. system. Sorry. Yeah. ILS is the other one. The Poppy or Pappy is um, four lights by the <laughs> side of the runway. Is it, it's that, probably Pappy, not Poppy. It's Pappy. Huh? Yeah, it's Pappy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it's the four lights by the runway that kind of shows you, you know, visually you can look at and tell if you're too high or yeah. too low. The ILS uh, is all instrument. It's all, yeah. you know, you don't have to look outside because visibility is too poor. You wouldn't be able to see it. This is a tangent, but if, if you want a really cool visual representation of the Pappy system. We have one in uh, episode one of Black Box Down Aviation Explanation, our little animated series. Yeah, it's really, really uh, interesting to take a look at and shows you how it works. So a few minutes later, they were cleared number three to land following a 727 on a nine mile final. A minute later, the captain asked the first officer if he could lower the gear yet, but the first officer responded with, no, I think it's too early now. And they don't want to lower the gear because it would slow them down? Well, I, I, if I had to speculate, I think the first officer didn't... It, w- it would make them have to burn more fuel. Yeah, that's what I meant. Like, yeah. Slow, like, yeah. So the first officer's trying to, like, keep that drag decreased and trying to keep them, you know, burning as little fuel as possible. At 9.17, the controller asked what their airspeed was, and the crew replied with 140 knots. The controller then asked him to increase 10 knots of speed, and the first officer acknowledged this. And the captain then said to the first officer... Tell me things louder because I'm not hearing it. What? Why? Yeah, there was some there was some miscommunication going on here. The the captain 
was not very confident in his English. So the first officer was having to handle oh. all of the communication. Oh, and so the first officer was more... having to tell the captain. Right. Even more telephone going on. Right. And then the captain oh. can't hear him very well. And that's why he gets mad and snaps at him. Like, I can't hear you. You have to tell me louder. Because the first officer hears the request to increase the speed by 10 knots. Then he has to tell the captain, we need to increase our speed by 10 knots. And that's why the captain's getting mad at him now. Oh. So a minute later, the first officer said they were three miles from the outer marker, and the captain said he was resetting the ILS. The first officer responded with, here it is already intercepted, glide slope alive. At 9.19, the crew lowered the landing gear and they were cleared to land. The captain then instructed the first officer to set flaps to 50 and asked if they were cleared to land. First officer said they were cleared to land, then said localizer to the left, slightly below glide slope. So they're, you know, they're coming into land, but they're a little off from the ILS approach. And that's what the mm-hmm. first officer is pointing out at this point. The flight engineer and captain then had a brief back and forth about confirming the flat position. And the first officer again said, below glide slope. So they're low. They're too low to the ground, is that what you're saying? Right, they're too close to the ground. They're below, okay. they're below the glide slope, which means they're coming in on too low of an approach, which means they're getting too close to the ground. Okay. Uh, at this point, air traffic control asked if they could increase their speed at all. And the first officer said they were doing it. At 9.22, the first officer called out slightly below glide slope. And at this point, the flight was about 3.2 miles from the approach end of runway 22 left and about 1,000 feet above the field. The first officer then made a comment saying, this is the wind shear. The ground proximity warning system then made 11 pull-up alerts and then four glide slope deviation alerts. So they, they, they hit that wind shear that they were warned about and it's uh-huh. making them sink. Again, they're low to begin with. The wind shear hits, they get even lower which is causing alerts to go off. And at 9.23, when they were 1.3 miles away from the approach end of the runway, at an altitude of 200 feet, the captain asked, the runway, where is it? The first officer said, yeah, they can't, they're still, you know, they're still one mile away. Part of me was like, I hope we already skipped the part where they couldn't find the runway. No, you're in it right now. They're 1.3 miles away at 200 feet over the ground, and they don't even see the runway. I just assume it's covered in snow. It's all like, well, it's, it's like there's thick fog and rain. Oh. So they, I mean, there's the visibility's terrible and there's just like a really low cloud ceiling. Uh-huh. They can't see anything. This is totally instrument uh, approach weather. They, like, they, can't, they have windows, but they may as well not have windows. You know, it's so, mm. it's so bad. And with what visibility they do have, they might be able to see some of the runway lights, but they're still 1.3 miles away and they're so low at 200 feet. Mm. They can't, yeah. there's no way they could possibly see it. So the first officer says he can't see it. The captain called for the landing gear to come up. He radioed air traffic control and said they were executing a missed approach. They were instructed to maintain 2,000 feet and turn left to 180 degrees. 20 seconds later, the flight engineer called out 2,000 feet. The captain said, I don't know what happened with the runway. I didn't see it. And then both the first officer and engineer said they didn't see it either. So chances are they just got too low. Visibility was too bad and they couldn't see any of the, uh, any of the lights or the runway at all. And so they just kept going yeah so then they had to climb out of it and then try to circle and land again so air traffic control radioed back to confirm they were turning left and the captain told the first officer to tell air traffic control they were in an emergency because remember the captain can't speak english very well so he's having to tell the first officer to do it oh no the first officer told air traffic control that's right to 180 on the heading and uh we'll try once again we're running out of fuel side note if you're getting really picky here uh, I think his word choice here was poor, saying that's right to 180. Right can also be interpreted as a direction. This didn't play in, into this incident, but they were making a uh-huh. left turn to 180. Oh, it can just so, lead to it can just lead to confusion. Yeah, 
If he said, that's correct. Exactly. Or just repeat it. Left turn to 180 or something like that. Anyway, again, neither here nor there. Yeah. Just when I take flight lessons, my instructor yells at me. If I use a right as a confirmation <laughs> and not as a direction, I've gotten yelled at so many times. It like stands out to me now. Is that why people use like in, in ships, they starboard and, <laughs> and all may, may, like, Maybe port and starboard. Yeah. Here's something that may shock you. Incognito mode is not actually incognito. That's right. The fine print says that your activity might still be visible to your employer, school, or ISP. The only way to really stop people from seeing the sites you visit is ExpressVPN. Think about all the times you use Wi-Fi at a cafe, hotel, your parents' house. Without ExpressVPN, every site you visited could be logged by the network admin, even in incognito mode. Do you really want your parents seeing what you've been looking at? Your ISP can also see and record your browsing data, then sell it to advertisers. ExpressVPN encrypts all your network data, reroutes it through a network of secure servers, so your online activity stays private. ExpressVPN works on all your devices and gets to work with the tap of a button. I think using a VPN is very important. Helps you know give you an extra layer of protection. Uh, keeps you you know what you're doing obviously private, so that nobody else can snoop on it if uh, you know they're monitoring your network. Uh, I've been using ExpressVPN myself for two years now. Can't recommend it enough. I think it's a great product. It's super simple to use. Super simple to install. You should try it out. So stop letting strangers invade your online privacy. Protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. Use our link at expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown to get an extra three months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown to learn more. Don't you think that it's time that cooking at home was easy, fun, and affordable? Then try HelloFresh. HelloFresh delivers pre-portioned ingredients to your door, including farm fresh produce that arrives within a week, so you get all the convenience and quality without any of the trips to the grocery stores or food waste. HelloFresh has fit and wholesome recipes for satisfying and nutritious meals that you can feel good about with six recipes per week to choose from, including low-calorie and carb-conscious options. Speaking of options, HelloFresh has 50 menu and market items to choose from each week, including veggie, family-friendly, and gourmet options. I love HelloFresh. It's super convenient. The stuff gets delivered right to your door. It's exactly how much you need. Easy to follow instructions. I like putting it all together. I, I think it's a lot of fun to, you know, open up the box, sort everything. Then when it's time to cook, pull it all out, look at the instructions and, you know, it takes about 30 minutes. Then when it's done, I get to eat a fantastic meal. So go to HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown16. Use code BlackBoxDown16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. That's HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown16. Code BlackBoxDown16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. America's number one meal kit. You're about to hear a preview of The Jordan Harbinger Show with North Korean defector Yeonmi Park. In North Korea, birds and mice can hear your whisper. It's the only place that modernity hasn't touched. 90-70% North Korean roads are not paved. In the hospital, they use one needle to inject everybody. It's very common to have a surgery without painkiller. The worst torture is being starved. And before you die from starvation, you hallucinate. You lose your mind. So some mothers eat their children because they thought their children were dogs. Because they go crazy when you don't eat. And then they wake up and then like, what happened to my child? Very unique thing with the North Koreans in their dream is always North Korea. You never escape in your subconscious. You're there forever. Every night. Every night I'm there. Like nobody escapes in your dream. To hear more about the bizarre mind games that generations of North Koreans have had to endure under the current regime, check out episode 578 and 579 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. Okay, so after, you know, the first officer says all this to air traffic control, air traffic control responds with just, okay. <laughs> uh, and, and the captain said, advise him we are emergency. And then a few seconds later asked, did you tell him? 
The first officer replied with, yes, sir, I already advised him. Even though the first officer never said emergency. He didn't? No, if you remember everything I've said, the first officer has never Uh. said emergency. (laughs) Uh. At 9.25, the crew made contact with an approach controller who instructed them to maintain 3,000 feet. The captain told Mm. the first officer to advise the controller that they don't have fuel. The first officer told the controller, climb and maintain 3,000 and we're running out of fuel, sir. The captain then asked if he advised the controller and the first officer said, yes, sir, I already advised him. 180 on the heading. We are going to maintain 3,000 feet and he's going to get us back. Mm. So yeah, the key word that keeps getting missed here yeah. is emergency. <laughs> like he keeps he keeps saying we're running out of fuel. But like, what does that yeah, mean? What is that? Like how close to out? Yeah, you nailed it when you said, what does that mean? What does that mean? That, the, that doesn't <laughs> convey how serious the situation actually is. So because he hasn't conveyed it and because he hasn't said emergency... A minute passes by, and then the controller says, I'm going to bring you about 15 miles northeast and then turn you back on for the approach. Is that fine with you and your fuel? The first officer replies, I guess so. Thank you very much. no. No. Yeah, this is not going well. Oh, first officer. He's probably Uh stressed out and just overwhelmed. I mean, I don't don't know what to say at this point. So three minutes later at 929, the first officer asked the controller if they could have a final approach now. The controller responded with, affirmative, turn left heading 040, climb and maintain 3000. The first officer replied with, negative, sir. We just running out of fuel. We okay. 3000 now. Okay. Oh. I, I don't know what that means. The, he's done, done even, those aren't even sins. That's just like, we go now. <laughs> yeah, it's like negative, now okay. What? <laughs> uh, the controller just says, okay, turn left 310, sir. About a minute later, they were told to fly 360 in order to make room, and then were told to fly 330. At 9.32, the first officer said, flame out, flame out on engine oh. number four, and then flame out on number three, essential on number two or number one. So they're running out. They, they are literally out of fuel now. Their engines are, you know, they're, the, the two engines on the right side of the plane have turned off. Do they all, like the fuel tanks, do they have separate one for each engine, I assume? It, it can be configured in a number of different ways. I don't know specifically in this case on the 707 how they had it. They could all okay. draw from one big tank or they could have separate tanks dedicated to each one or they might be able to switch it um, you know, depending oh, yeah, on what like tank they're drawing transfer. from. Yeah. Right. Even like the small single engine plane I fly has two tanks and you can, you can either pull mm. from both of them or switch between them. So I see on this bigger plane, they have they can pull from whatever uh, tank they want to. So the first officer then radioed air traffic control and said, we just uh, lost two engines and uh, we need priority, please. The controller then instructed them to a heading of 250 degrees and advised them they were 15 miles from the outer marker and cleared them for an ILS approach to 22 left. So the outer marker itself is normally between four and seven miles from the end of the runaway. So they're about 20 miles away from the actual runway at this point. There's not a closer one or no 20 miles is pretty close. <laughs> you okay, know? okay. I don't uh, know. But <laughs> I mean normally, yeah, if you've got a, a big plane like this, 20 miles is nothing. But they're out of fuel, you know? Um mm-hmm. at 9:33, the captain told the first officer to select the ILS and then asked if it was selected. The controller then informed the flight they were 15 miles from the outer marker and to maintain 2,000 till established on the localizer, cleared for ILS 22 left. The first officer responded with, it is ready on two. At this point, the cockpit voice recorder ends. 
At 9.34, the controller asked the crew if they had enough fuel to make it to the airport, but there was no response. Oh, no. Yeah, because at about this time, Flight 52 impacted on a hillside in a wooded residential area on the north shore of Long Island. The right side of the Ford fuselage impacted and fractured the wooden deck of a residential home. There was no post-crash fire because they were out of fuel. Oh. All three crew members were killed along with five flight attendants and 64 passengers. There were 81 serious injuries and four minor injuries uh, from the survivors. What's interesting about this is I've seen an interview with one of the accident investigators who worked uh, uh-huh. this incident. And he said, you know, they were they were totally out of fuel. Like I said, there was no fire. Yeah. If they had happened to like come down on perfectly level ground, everyone might have survived this. That's what I was wondering whenever, I, the, whenever they couldn't see the runway. I was like, if they just landed you know their best spot of you know like at least the plane yeah. might get messed up but they would land right yeah it, there was like it was a, there was a slight hill here so they kind of impact it which is oh. what causes the forward part of the fuselage to break off and like the entire force of the plane just basically hits that hill and just stops immediately and they didn't see the hill i assume or or they couldn't do anything because there was no fuel right they're, they're just totally out of their hands at that point a little bit of uh, uh a trivia about this like this was a very prestigious like very um affluent neighborhood where this crash happened Uh and uh the the first responders set up like a triage rescue area in the lawn of john McEnroe's father's house who's that sorry (laughs) john McEnroe's a famous tennis player from like uh the 80s and 90s yeah yeah you had sports people gus is me is not (laughs) (laughs) sorry sorry. we did a whole i thought it was I thought, it, I thought it was interesting. For I, I'm sure most people. Yeah, if you followed tennis, uh, and you, may, you might even have recognized him. He used to do a lot of like TV commercials for like uh, Canon EOS Rebel cameras. That's the one I always remember. I mean, Gus, we did a whole video a few years back on YouTube about me not knowing anything about sports, if you remember. <laughs> that, that is true. I totally forgot about that. So the investigation was carried out by the NTSB, and they discovered that the fuel load on the plane was actually above the required amount to fly from Columbia to New York City. Mm. The NTSB determined the fuel load was sufficient, and after some tests, there were no malfunctions that would have accounted for unintended loss of fuel during the flight. However, the NTSB did find issues with the dispatching services from Medellin and the performance of the flight crew. The weather data that was provided to the crew of Flight 52 before departure from Medellin was about 10 hours old. Oh. Remember, they get the weather when they take off, mm-hmm. and they flew this whole route and the weather data and the current weather data both showed that the planned alternates from the flight were forecast to be below the minimum specified for an alternate airport at the time of flight 52's arrival in the jfk boston logan was filed as the alternate but syracuse and buffalo both had legal alternate weather uh, but they were not listed as alternates so basically they just kind of picked boston when there were other options Mm. available too Avianca personnel said that Boston was listed as an alternate because it was part of a computer-generated flight plan for all flights in a JFK without regard for the weather. So, oh, <laughs> the, that's it just kind dumb. of the computers. Yeah, the computer just kind of auto-generated Boston, and no human looked at it and thought, "Well, is the weather going to be good there too, or could we do another airport that's also in the area?" No one's double-checking. Yeah. No one's looking at it. It just kind of gets printed and forgotten. Well, yeah. Also, their automated system should take that into account. You would think so. Right? It's 1990. Maybe they don't have the technology okay. yet. But yeah, why? You would you would think that if the technology didn't exist, then the next step would be since we don't have this technology, someone needs to sit and look at it and make sure this is right. Yeah, and of course, you know, nowadays that's not an issue. There's, we, you know, we do have the technology. There's, you know, updated weather's updated real time, and you know, there's GPS maps in cockpits. It's to- totally different nowadays. 
Then also the outdated and current weather for JFK showed a forecast of ceilings and restricted visibility near or below the minimum to make an approach. The NTSB believes that the listing of an alternate airport with forecast weather below the minimum illustrates inadequate dispatching services provided by the airline. So the airline just messed this up is what they're getting at. They sh- oh. they didn't take the weather into account at all. They didn't take the weather into account at JFK. They didn't take the weather into account in Boston. And they set them up for failure. They sent them on this flight without thinking about how it was going to be impossible for them to land when they got there. Mm. The NTSB was unable to establish whether the dispatcher for Flight 52 had received training in meteorology or navigation. The dispatch function in airline operations is an important part of the safety of operations. The dispatcher for an airline flight shares the responsibility for proper flight planning, including fuel loading, weight and balance calculations, and appropriate weather information. So this is an important position. Yeah. <laughs> like some of the, all the stuff we talked about here... All of this has led to incidents we've talked about before. Fuel load, weight and balance, mm-hmm. appropriate weather. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. this all comes into one place and they share this responsibility for all of this. The safety board's concerned that Flight 52 was not provided adequate dispatch services on the day of its departure from Medellin. The NTSB believes that these deficiencies may have affected the performance of the flight crew during the flight. The weather information provided by dispatch was not the latest weather available. Also, there's no record that the flight crew used available resources to obtain updated weather and traffic information during the on-route phase of the flight. So on top of the weather data being old and out of date, the crew never called for weather updates on their trip. That technology definitely existed back then. Uh, You cannot make an excuse for that. They could have listened in on the ATIS at any station along the way. They could have radioed and asked for a weather report, either from the tower or from other pilots. Like There's no reason that they should not have been able to get updated weather. Yeah. The first indication that the flight crew had some concern about the weather and possibly the fuel state happens at about 8.09 p.m. This was towards the end of their second holding pattern near Atlantic City. The crew had requested information about delays into Boston, and they were told that Boston was open and accepting traffic and to expect as much as 30 additional minutes of holding in the New York airspace. There was no further indication from the flight crew about the fuel state until after the airplane had been holding for its third time. And one of the possible reasons for the flight crew's delay in expressing concern may have been a misconception about the significance of the expected further clearances issued by air traffic control. Uh, it wasn't until air traffic control told them to expect further clearance at 9.05 that the crew had realized they would have to do an approach with priority handling. So they didn't really think it was going to be an issue until like, oh no, oh my God, it's an issue now. <laughs> they were kind of yeah. like, yeah, it's going to be fine, it's going to be fine. That's like, oh no, we're in an emergency. By the time they realize it, uh-huh. They'd already exhausted their fuel reserve to the point where they couldn't reach Boston. Like by the time they be- became concerned about it, they couldn't even reach their alternate airport, and that's when they were like, "Oh, we have a problem now." Yeah, I mean, I mean, what is what's the? I mean, forty-eight minutes of of circling is a long time, right? Like, what is yeah. a normal amount of circling before people should be concerned? Well, if you're a passenger, ideally, you're never concerned. <laughs> but, uh, well, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah, it, I'm speaking it, as a yeah, yeah, in in. in you know, they they should be constantly doing fuel calculations. And I did read when we were looking into this incident, I remember I read uh, about the amount of fuel they took on and they did take on, you know, they took on the required fuel. They took on the extra fuel for circling. And they actually, they, on this flight, they even took extra fuel above and beyond what they needed just to be safe, but it still ended up not being enough. Back then, I can't tell you, you know, what would have been an appropriate time back then. The 707 used way more fuel than a modern plane does. Oh, because it has four engines. Right. And they were not as efficient. So nowadays, you you know, it's not as much of an issue. Back then, it was definitely an issue. You know, they they held for plenty of time. I don't, I don't know. I think 
if they're at their first hold, they should have been talking about it. You know, mm-hmm. they, they, and they did, but they kind of discounted it. By the time they get up to, you know, the second hold, they should be like, hey, are we going to have to divert? Like, they should be rerunning their calculation at that point. Yeah, they should have been playing. Because the weather was bad. Right. And it was going to be bad. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And they should have declared an emergency as well. They never did that. You know, they requested, yeah. you know, I think, what did he say? He said priority handling. What does that mean? Uh, I mean, he should have said <laughs> emergency. I, I, I know what I know what you know they're trying to say, and he you know he's saying he wants priority handling. Sure, of course, but you know they never actually said it was an emergency. Priorities like hey, as soon as you know we put us to the front of the line if you can, right? Not like yeah. hey, we we need it now. Clear like yeah, pull out all the stops. And then on top of that, from the time when they did request the priority uh, handling, they didn't crash for another forty-seven minutes after that. Oh. So, I mean, they, they, they should have declared an emergency at that point. Okay. There was this, the 48 minutes of the second. Whenever they start, how long was it before they started their third circling and then the actual crash? So they entered their third holding pattern at 8.18 p.m. This is when they were about 39 miles uh, south mm-hmm. of JFK at that point. The crash didn't happen till 9.34 p.m. Oh, so that's an hour and 16 minutes later on top of, what do we say, like the 49 minutes earlier. So they had held for probably over two hours at that point. Yeah. That, okay. So it's not like they had to hold unexpectedly and then they crashed immediately. It's like there were a lot of holds. Yeah. That's a, and this might be not exactly correct, but 124, I mean, the math of 48 plus 76 is 124, but it might've mm-hmm. been like, I don't know, but that's, that's a long time to be circling. Yeah. And like I said, when they requested priority handling, they still didn't crash for 47 minutes after that. And they, they had opportunity to, to save this multiple times. You know, they should have made their fuel calculations when they had about 17,000 pounds of fuel remaining when they started their descent from flight level 370. But there's no indication they did that. So when they start their descent from cruising altitude, they should have recalculated. They didn't. Mm. The airline's only written procedure for minimum fuel operation was based on indicated fuel quantity in any main tank of a thousand pounds or less, which at that point is critical. The procedure did not address a minimum fuel quantity for which a flight should be at the outer marker inbound to the runway. So the procedures were lacking. And the ones that did, that ones that were there written down, in my opinion, were not that great. So you'll notice there's, there, there's certain things I'm talking about and certain things I'm not talking about. I keep mentioning, like I'll, 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 I can talk about their conversation and I've talked about it you know, after, you know, when they're entering one of their one of their later holes. And the reason is, you know, back then cockpit voice recorders only recorded the last 40 minutes of conversation. You know, it was it was the kind that would write over itself. So, mm-hmm. you know, for cockpit voice recorder, we only have those final 40 minutes. On top of that, the flight data recorder wasn't working. Oh, is the old kind that we've talked about before that was like foil and it would make imprints on the foil. The problem was that someone had taped it down like the fo- someone had taped the foil down. So it wasn't actually running. Wait, they taped it. What do you mean? They taped it down? Yeah, the way it would work is like it was a roll of foil that would get slowly unspooled and then the flight data would be like etched onto the foil. Think of it, you know, like when you buy aluminum foil, right? Like that, you know, mm-hmm. it's all rolled up. And I'll imagine if someone, you know, at the edge where you would pick the foil up, if someone had just put a piece of tape there so that it couldn't unroll. Oh. That's all it was. Okay. <laughs> no one knows why. It, uh, it wasn't before this flight. It's, who knows how long it had been out of operation? It just wasn't working. Which is frustrating, (laughs) but luckily, you know, this is a a pretty clear cut incident of what happened, but it just goes to show like there were other issues going on here. Mm -hmm. So since they only had, you know, 40 minutes of conversation, the NTSB couldn't determine whether the crew discussed the minimum fuel level that they should have had on board when commencing approach. Mm -hmm. However, 
you know, from the air traffic control communications, you know, while they were in their third holding pattern, it's apparent that they were concerned. Whether the captain or the first officer or both believed that these transmissions to air traffic control conveyed the urgency for emergency handling is unknown. Mm. However, when the crew were instructed to make a 360, they should have known that they were being treated routinely and that this situation should have prompted them to question the clearance and reiterate the criticality of their fuel condition. Because like, yeah, if they're being spaced out and being told to do this 360, it's like, well, obviously we're not. They don't know. They don't understand. They think we can just make this circle <laughs> to mm-hmm. give someone else space to land when the other plane should be making the circle and letting us land. Yeah. They didn't, you know. They didn't question this. They, they, the the first officer was very passive in it. And we went to like, thanks, I guess. Okay. Mm. Yeah, I was like gritting my teeth when you were... <laughs> I was like, yeah, it, It's frustrating. The NTSB also says that the captain was having issues with his radio headset, which made it hard for him to hear uh, and to communicate, which is why he was also kind of, you know, barking at the first officer in that one point. Mm-hmm. During the go-around and set up for another approach, the first officer, like I said, he never used the word emergency even when the engines flamed out, he never said emergency. The captain yeah. told him to and kept asking to make sure he did. And the first officer said yes, but obviously he never did. He never said it was an emergency. He just kind of assumed that air traffic control would know that there was an emergency, but they were unaware of the severity of the situation. Because on top of everything else, like I said, air traffic control had their own telephone game going on where they were being passed from controller to controller. I didn't even mention this. One of the controllers that they were talking to like ended his shift and went home for the day and passed him uh. off to a different controller. So he wasn't even there anymore. And, you know, if, since they didn't stress that it was an emergency, that information was never passed on, you know, yeah. as they're going from person to person. Yeah, because they, they probably have a ton of planes that are circling and trying to land. They have so many. Right. Yeah, we talked about that. They were, they're backed up. <sighs> the maintenance records for this plane show that there were recent problems with the autopilot and the flight director. And because of this, the NTSB believes that the captain had hand-flown the plane from Medellin all the way to JFK. <laughs> oh, and that the approach was flown using raw data without the aid of a flight director. So he spent hours manually flying. And then on top of that, you know... Bad weather and... Yeah, mm. bad weather. And then on top of that, there's this stress going on with fatigue and uh, everything else. And, and and communication being an issue. Like not... Yeah, having right. the telephone. With, this is This is... You're not setting them up for success here. You're setting them up for failure. During the ILS approach, the airplane was flying into a headwind that had a wind speed of 60 knots or more at 1,000 feet and 50 knots at 500 feet. The speed on the ground was 20 knots. Under these conditions, as the airplane descends, it experiences a decreasing headwind that must be recognized and compensated for by the pilots. So, you know, their, their airspeed is going down because their headwind is decreasing rapidly. You know, if they go mm-hmm. from 60 knots to 20 knots, they lose 40 knots of airspeed in that change. You say headwind, that means they're... The wind is, they're going with the wind? They're flying into the wind. The wind's coming straight at them. Oh, okay. So yeah, so there are, and they're using more fuel because they're fighting the wind. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that that is that is true. But I think at this point, when they're this low, the bigger concern is that when you're losing that headwind, you always want to land uh-huh. and take off into the wind. When you're losing that headwind, you're losing wind speed over your wings, which is decreasing your lift, okay. which can become okay, dangerous. Yeah. yeah, so then that means that, yeah, they'll all of a sudden drop. Yes, in fact, a couple of days ago, I was, uh, you know, I've, I've been taking flying lessons. I've taken, uh, I w- and I was flying up to uh, an airport just north of Austin. And, you know, we were just a couple hundred feet off the ground and we had a wind shear. And our airspeed went from about 75 knots to 59 knots almost instantly. Mm. 
for us at that speed, we run into a danger of a stall. So it's like you have to Im immediately give it full power. And even though you're low to the ground, you have to nose down. Otherwise, you're going to stall and die. <laughs> so yeah. um, on a bigger plane like this, I can't imagine how nerve wracking that is, especially on top of that. This captain has been flying for hours with no autopilot. You know, he's probably f fatigued like crazy. Also, just the idea of like giving it full power when you have no fuel. Right. right? Like I'm just imagining my car. I've like, you know, play, played that game where you're driving, you're like out of gas and you're just trying to like glide on the road, you know, like yeah, coast to get downhill to the, as much as you can. Station. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. come on, gas station. Come on. <laughs> like accelerate super slow. And the reason I, I try to explain all of this about like the, the wind shear, the loss of headwind, mm -hmm. I'm trying to set this up so you understand that's kind of, and, and the autopilot being out, that's kind of why they were below glide slope the whole time. Remember on that first approach? Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. And the, the first I was kept telling below glide slope. They just weren't able to get the proper adjustments to get realigned, which caused them to lose. You know, they weren't able to see the runway and which set up the go around in the first place. Because if they had, you know, if they had just been a little higher, if they'd made oh. it to the runway and landed, that would this would have been a near disaster. Yeah. You know, they would have landed. It would have been fine. It's just awful. They got so close to saving it and then didn't. I bet the tower didn't even know what was going on. They were like, hello? Huh, you're yeah, like, you're right. Actually, they didn't know it was an emergency. They weren't like, "Oh, it's an emergency." Everyone, like, pay attention. They were just like, "Okay, you're, you know, good." Yeah, yeah. Some of the some of the conversation between controllers is like, um, I don't remember exactly what it said. I didn't write it down, but it was like, "Yeah, you know, Avianca Fifty Two said they lost an engine trying to get them in. Yep, they're not responding now." And then it's like, yeah. "Oh, they might have crashed." <laughs> you know, it's like slowly dawning, like putting the pieces together. So the findings of the report say, you know, there was no malfunction of the engine or the fuel system components that would have caused premature fuel exhaustion. Yeah. The flight crew was not provided with and they did not request the most current weather forecast available for the destination or the alternate airport. The alternate airport selected at the time of the departure did not meet the prescribed weather criteria for an alternate based on the weather information provided to the crew at the time of departure. The weather conditions worsened at both the destination and alternate while the flight was on route. So Boston, like we said, wasn't even a good choice when they started mm -hmm. their flight and it got worse during the duration of the flight. There's no record that while on route, the flight crew requested updated weather information from any source regarding the destination or alternate airport. Like we said, they never bothered to check the weather. The flight crew did not adequately communicate its increasingly critical fuel situation to the controllers who handled the flight. They just kept requesting priority. The first officer who made all recorded transmissions to U.S. controllers was sufficiently proficient in English to be understood by all air traffic control personnel. So there was not a language barrier with the first officer communicating. Mm -hmm. The first officer incorrectly assumed that his request for priority handling by air traffic control had been understood as a request for emergency handling. The captain experienced difficulties in monitoring communication between the flight and air traffic control. The controller's actions in response to Flight 52's requests were proper and responsive to a request for priority handling. They did not understand that an emergency situation existed. Yeah. So like we said, they just kept getting told priority. That's all they, that's all they knew. The first officer who made all uh, recorded radio transmissions in English never used the word emergency, even when he radioed that two engines had flamed out and he did not use the appropriate phraseology published in U.S. aeronautical publications to communicate to air traffic control the flight's minimum fuel status. The captain did not fly the ILS approach in a stabilized manner, which led to a serious deviation below the glide slope and his initiation of a go-around. A wind shear on the approach path contributed to the captain's poor performance on the ILS approach. Although other flights successfully completed the approach through the same wind condition, the captain's performance on the approach was probably degraded by fatigue after the long flight and by his mm -hmm. reliance on raw glide slope position data rather than on autopilot or flight director guidance. So again, it's like 
like I said, yeah. he was probably physically tired and then didn't have any of the automation to help him land the plane. Yeah. The FAA traffic management programs failed to manage the traffic volume at JFK effectively, leading to excessive delays and airborne holdings, including more than one hour for Flight 52. And we, you know, we calculated here. It was what, uh, yeah. all told, between all the holds, it was like a little over two hours. Yeah. The FAA's traffic management programs for JFK did not adequately account for overseas arrivals and missed approaches at JFK. Cabin crew members and passengers were not warned of the impending crash landing, which may have contributed to the severity of the injuries sustained. So they didn't even get to oh, brace. They didn't even... Yeah, they were probably just like, oh man, I'm ready. And then all of a sudden they hit. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Well, they were I mean, they were all upset. The flight's obviously delayed. It's yeah. bad weather. They're, you know, it's really rough. They all sat through the go around. They thought they were going to land and they took back off. You know, it was... They, they were not happy to begin with. And then out of nowhere, they, they crashed. They impacted the ground. The NTSB determined the probable cause of this accident was the failure of the flight crew to adequately manage the airplane's fuel load and their failure to communicate an emergency fuel situation to air traffic control before fuel exhaustion occurred. Contributing to the accident was the flight crew's failure to use an airline operational control dispatch system to assist them during the international flight into a high-density airport in poor weather. Also contributing to the accident was inadequate traffic flow management by the FAA and the lack of standardized, understandable terminology for pilots and controllers for minimum and emergency fuel states. So the language was a little lacking. Mm-hmm. Not just like, we're talking about English, we're talking about like the way yeah. standardized communication between pilots mm-hmm. and air traffic control. Okay, so we have these every now and then where you get an investigation and people have dissenting opinions. And this is one of those situations where there were disagreements in the final report. Okay. These, I think, are super interesting uh, because you really, you know, you really get to the meat of it. You know, you really get to see like what are people really thinking here. And there yeah. were two NTSB members who disagreed slightly with the final statement. The first Ooh. member said, "Although I support the probable cause and recommendations as adopted, I have voted against the adoption of this report because it fails to adequately deal with the role of the air traffic control services in this accident scenario. Air traffic control services were inadequate in four respects." The Washington controller failed to inform the flight crew of additional holding in the Washington area. The JFK Tower local controller failed to transmit the latest runway visible range and the latest wind shear report to the flight crew. The JFK Tower local controller failed to forward to the next controller the remark by the flight crew concerning their fuel situation. The controller in charge in the JFK Tower failed to ensure that the ATIS contained the pilot reports of wind shear as required. And the ATIS is the automatically updated uh, weather information. He has some more to say here about it. Uh While I can accept the argument that such unsatisfactory service was not causal to this accident, this pattern of substandard service reflects poorly on the air traffic control system and raises serious safety concerns. Although the Mm -hmm. reasons for this pattern of substandard service have not been developed in the report, I suspect it has little to do in this case with the experience level of the controllers and a great deal to do with the controller workload under the weather conditions and with the fact that FAA flow control intentionally allowed a greater flow of traffic bound for JFK into the system than could be safely and efficiently accommodated by the system. So he's laying mm. a lot of blame on the FAA, which, you know, we've gotten into this before, like the politics of it all. Like, uh-huh. you, know, <laughs> you know, is is the NTSB, you know, how autonomous are they? You know, how much fault can they really put at the FAA's feet? This particular NTSB member was really unhappy So he made it a point to write all this out. A different member wrote, I concur in part with the probable cause as adopted, but I dissent in part because I do not agree that a contributing factor is the lack of standardized, understandable terminology for pilots and controllers 
for minimum and emergency fuel states. We do have standardized, understandable terminology. Mayday, internationally, and emergency mm. in English that would have adequately communicated the existence of dangerous situation. And the problem was that the pilots failed to use this terminology with the controllers. So he's a little more putting the blame on the, 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 on the crew. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. They never said emergency. So right, that, or mayday, or anything. Yeah. They, they they didn't adequately convey how bad the situation was. So they came up with five recommendations: develop in cooperation with the ICAO, that's the International Civil Aviation Organization, a standardized glossary of definitions, terms, words, and phrases to be used that are clearly understandable to both pilots and air traffic controllers regarding minimum and emergency fuel communications. Conduct a comprehensive study of the central flow control facility and the traffic management system the Office of Safety Quality Assurance to determine the effectiveness and appropriateness of training, responsibilities, procedures, and methods of application for the traffic management system. That's more dealing with how many planes are they able to get in Mm -hmm. in bad weather. Require that transport category airplane flight manuals include procedures specifying minimum fuel values for various phases of airline flights at which a landing should not be delayed and when emergency handling by air traffic control should be requested. The manual requirement and associated amendments to regulations and procedures should include criteria for when air traffic control must be notified that the airplane must be en route to its destination or alternate airport via routine handling and when emergency handling is required. So again, that's the thing we like to see. Put it in writing. Make it standard. When do Mm -hmm. you have to declare the emergency? When do you have to divert? That's good. Yeah. Incorporate into air route traffic control centers equipment to provide a recorded broadcast of traffic management information that can be monitored by all aircraft within each center's boundaries to probe pilots with early indications of potential delays on route. So to be more proactive about letting pilots know when there's going to be delays. Uh, And then the last one, immediately issue a general notice directing management of all air traffic control facilities to formally brief all air traffic controllers on the circumstances of this accident and emphasize the need to request from flight crews clarification of unclear or ambiguous transmissions that convey a possible emergency situation or need for additional air traffic control assistance. So, you know, when it was all said and done at the end in July 1990, Avianca offered $75,000 to each crash survivor or the relatives of those killed. The U.S. government eventually joined Avianca and reached a settlement estimated at over $200 million in damages to the victims. And I want to expand on that just for a second. So... You know, I always said that one NTSB member dissented and said the FAA held uh-huh. responsibility here as well. In the end, the U.S. government was responsible for 40% of those damages. Whoa. So they ended up paying, you know, $80 million of that $200 million, which just goes to show, I think he was right. And, you know, <laughs> the FAA and the, the, you know, they weren't directly responsible for this accident, but they didn't handle it in an appropriate manner. And it did very, in my opinion, very directly also lead to uh, this yeah. accident happening. Has there been another or a similar type of experience where the weather was so bad and there were so many planes kind of all circling around that they like weren't able to land them all in the planes like this was happening with multiple planes? I mean, it does happen sometimes. Typically what will happen, though, is the planes divert. Then they go to their Mm -hmm. alternate airport like they have another airport that's available to them that they'll divert to. Sometimes here in Austin, we'll get diversions from Houston Mm. at the airport here. Like I've seen... Airbus A380s at the Austin airport. That <laughs> no one flies an A380 <laughs> in Austin, but you know the, yeah. the airport here used to be a military base, so it's got a really long runway, so it can support these giant planes that are mm-hmm. supposed to be going to Houston. Uh, and that's that's what should happen. If you're circle, you know, if there's a ton of planes circling and they can't come in because of weather, 
they divert to another airport that should that has you know better weather yeah okay final note <laughs> there, there was a weird footnote here uh i wasn't sure whether to bring it up or not this was an unusual there was there was something strange that happened after the accident when they were taking um people to the hospital to get worked on mm-hmm. it turns out that two of the male passengers who survived the crash got arrested at the at the hospital what because they they had swallowed containers filled with cocaine in colombia and were smuggling <gasps> it into the united states and you know they once you know they they're injured they go into surgery they get you know starting to get treated or you know <laughs> get Ooh. cut open it's like oh they have cocaine in them <laughs> like there was one passenger who had internal bleeding and they had to, you know to look inside of him and they're like oh there's he he, he swallowed cocaine Wow, that's wild. Did they still get the settlement? I would assume they would, right? So I don't know. That's a good question, Chris. <laughs> I, 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 I have no idea. The medical examiner also said that some of the passengers who passed away also, you know, had swallowed cocaine and were smuggling it and that they had to post like armed guards at the morgue for fear that like people like someone would try to come and retrieve the bodies to get the drugs out of them because they were i guess it was like at the time it was value like each of them had about a million dollars of cocaine in them wow wow that is a lot of cocaine yeah i don't know what that is in like a physical amount but that <laughs> me neither but it sounds but like a that lot. seems like a lot to be carrying around in your stomach or butt yeah <laughs> so it, it's a it's just a, a weird footnote i don't know if i've seen another incident where something like that happened so i felt like I've, yeah, I felt compelled to bring it up and, and mention it at least. But that's it for Avianca Flight 52. God, I mean, they were so close to landing it. And like like many of the incidents we talk about, there were so many points along the way where this tragedy could have been averted. Yeah. Uh, but don't forget, check us out on social media at Black Box Down Pod, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and, uh, and check YouTube. out what, what we post. Oh, yeah, and on YouTube. And that's where you can see Aviation Explanation, like Chris mentioned. And uh, we'll be back again next week with another episode. And thank you. Yeah, thanks a bunch. For listening. Bye.